following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Matthew chapter 6 this morning, and we'll be in verses 5 through 8 uh, today. Wonderful passage of Scripture. But before we, we read the passage... Uh, in uh, the 1980s and 90s, uh, Andre Agassi was, was a pretty well-known tennis player. How many of you remember Andre Agassi? And uh, he, was, uh, he was pretty well-known, and, and eventually he had a pretty winning career, did, 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 did quite well, but uh, when he first burst on the scene in the, in the late 80s, uh, he was known more for his flair than he necessarily was for winning tennis matches. So... Uh, Andre Agassi had bleached hair, and he had cool clothes, and, and, uh, and so he was a cool guy, and that was really the main reason why people knew who he was, more than the fact that he was necessarily winning tennis matches. And uh, so because he was a cool guy, uh, in 1989, uh, Agassi made a commercial for the new Canon Rebel camera, and, uh, and so uh, Canon uh, wanted to use Agassi's flair to sell their camera as cool. Now, I don't know how you make a camera cool, but it was a rebel camera. I don't know if, you know, like it went off when you didn't push the button or what. But, but anyway, it was a Canon rebel camera, and they wanted it to come off as cool, and so they had Agassi do this commercial. And, um, and so in the final scene of the commercial, uh, they had Agassi dressed in this really uh, hip, uh, trendy white suit, and they had him get out of a, a white Lamborghini, you know, like a cool guy, and, and he pulled down his camera, his, his, uh, his, not his camera, his, his sunglasses, he looked in the camera, and he said, image is everything. And, uh, and the commercial made a, a big impact, and uh, a lot of people watched it. I, I remember seeing it as an eight-year-old boy, and, uh, and, and maybe some of you remember those commercials as well. They made several. And uh, so people remembered that line, image is everything. And, and you know, because the pride of life is deeply rooted in all of us, there's an extent to which we all believe that image matters a lot. And, and some people would really go so far as to truly believe that image is everything, that uh, that, that, that they want to be known a certain way, and, and, and above everything else, they want people to know them as, as whether it's spiritual, or, 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 or fit, or stylish, or cool, or smart, or whatever it might be. We all as sinners, who are all uh, inhabited by the pride of life, care about our image. And in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, uh, Jesus confronts the religious hypocrites of his day, who had elevated image and made image everything. So, so we began looking at this passage last week by looking at verses 1 through 4, and remember that they had taken three foundational aspects of Jewish piety, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, and they had turned them into a means of, 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 of advancing their image. They had turned these things into a theatrical production, you could say where they weren't just doing what God had called them to do, but made it a way to glorify themselves. And this morning, uh, we're going to jump into the second of these issues, which is prayer. And so Jesus is going to talk about prayer 
in verses 5 through 15. We're not going to cover the entire section today. Now, I imagine most of us are familiar with verses 9 through 13, uh, where Jesus gives what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And today, we're going to look at verses 5 through 8, though, which, which really lay an important foundation. You really can't understand what Jesus is trying to say in the Lord's Prayer without verses 5 through 8. But as well, these verses provide uh, a really important foundation just in general for how we think about prayer. So let's read what Jesus has to say. He says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go uh, into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. This passage gives two very simple but essential challenges for how we think about prayer. And so first of all, verses 5 and 6 challenge us to pray for God, not for people. Pray for God, not for people. Now, not like meaning that you pray for something good to happen to God, but pray for God's attention, not for people's attention. Now, now before we get into that, I do need just want, I want to note this, that that throughout this passage, uh, Jesus is going to give some strong corrections for how we think about prayer. And that's where we want to spend most of our time today. But I also want to make sure that we don't miss an important assumption that Jesus makes. And, and namely, that is that Jesus assumes that his disciples will make prayer a high priority in their lives. So he doesn't say, if you pray, does he? No, he says in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5, when you pray. Verse 6, but you, when you pray. And verse 7, and when you pray. So so this morning, uh, it's important that that we see that because we're going to talk a lot this morning about all the things that we can do wrong in prayer and and all the things that we ought to do right in prayer. And and it's very easy with a text like this to, to just focus on all the things that people should and shouldn't be doing in prayer and, and to turn into a critic of everyone else's prayer. And I hope we don't miss the fact that it's no good to be a critic of everyone else's prayers or even of your own prayers if you don't actually turn around and pray. The greatest need of your prayer life is that you give yourself to prayer. And 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. And Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says, continue earnestly in prayer. So I think it's important to say at the outset today that Jesus' goal is not to make us critics of everyone else's prayer. His goal is instead that that we would, would really here just see the beauty of what God has provided for us in the gift of prayer and to call us to be motivated to take advantage. So, so that being said, though, verses 5 and 6 contrast how the hypocrites in the Jewish religion approached prayer, and and how Christ's disciples should instead approach prayer. So so on the one hand, he says in verse 5 that hypocrites pray to impress people. 
Hypocrites pray to impress people. Now, to appreciate Jesus' point in verse 5, we need to just also understand that in the typical Jewish day, they would devote three time periods to prayer. So if you were a devout Jew, you would stop your day and pray at 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And each time they would pray, they would recite the Shema. So the Shema was the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. So, so you know, those verses say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So they would recite that. And then they would also recite the, the Shemone, which was a, a group of 18 uh, extra-biblical prayers that, that the Jews had prepared. And, and in and of itself, those are good disciplines. You know, to stop your day and to give three times of prayer, and even to pray substantive prayers that, that in and of themselves were good prayers. But, but Jesus here points out that the Jews had turned these prayer times into a way not to speak to God, but to impress people and to build an image for themselves. So what does Jesus say? He says these hypocrites, they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corner of the streets that they may be seen by men. So these guys, you know, they're thinking, man, if we're going to stop our day and pray, we are going to take full advantage. And we are going to put on this theatrical production and we're going to have every bell and whistle and we're going to make sure everyone sees how spiritual we are, how, how, how well we pray to the Lord, and, and, and we are going to put on a show. And, and so he mentions here that, that they would pray in the synagogues, which, which were the, uh, uh, the center of, of, of Israel's life in the community, of, of their religious life, and also oftentimes their public life. And, and they would also park themselves to pray at the street corners. Now, now the word he uses here for street is, is a word that refers to an especially busy street. So, so we're not talking about some little narrow alley, we're talking about a major thoroughfare. So they would park themselves on the corner of that street, which would be one of the busiest, most visible places in town, and they would pray. You know, so if these guys lived in Apple Valley, uh, they would park down at Apple Valley and Bear Valley Road in front of Walgreens, you know, right next to the, the guy that has his Trump flags, and, and they'd be out there, and, and they'd have on their impressive clothes, you know, shiny suit coat, you know, praying with big hand motions and, and, and verbose big words, and they would do everything they can to make sure everyone possible sees them. And really, it's comical, isn't it? And Jesus intends it that way. He wants us to see that this is an absurd show to put on for the purpose of prayer. But of course, he also wants us to think about how we can be tempted to do similar things. Have you ever heard someone pray in church this way? You know, they can't just pray. They, they have to use flowery language and, 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 and be dramatic in a way that's not natural. And, and they're not leading the congregation in prayer. They're, they're letting you know how smart they are. You know, letting you know what vocabulary word they learned on the cereal box this week. And all sorts of other things. And, and it's all about them, not about God. Now, now, I do want to add in, in saying that, that, that the Bible nowhere teaches that, that the solution to this hypocrisy is that we become 
flippant or, or, or overly or, or irreverent in, in how we approach prayer. I mean, leading congregation, for example, in prayer, someone prays in church, that is a serious matter. And, and so I, you know, for one, uh, I always have an outline for, for my opening prayer on Sunday morning because I want to do an excellent job of, of leading our church to the throne of grace. So, so, so the issue here is not that, that, that we need to be uh, thoughtless, uh, that we need to be crass or, or irreverent in, in how we do something like prayer. No, no the issue is who is being worshipped. Is it God that I'm worshipping, or am I worshipping myself? And we need to be sure that when we pray, we pray for God, not for men. And because otherwise, Jesus warns in verse 5, he says of these hypocrites who pray for show, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And that's the same statement he made up in verse 2 regarding fasting. That if you pray for the praise of men, you very well may get it. And someone might really be impressed with with your flowery language and and, and your zeal and and your intelligence. And and I want to say that in an images-everything society, that's a big deal, right? That, That we care as a people about people seeing us and and appreciating us. But of course, Jesus clearly intends this promise that people will see you and notice you as as having a hollow ring. And when you compare in particular worldly praise with the heavenly grace that verse 6 promises when we pray with sincerity, it's not very impressive at all. You know, so if I sacrifice the praise of God for a few measly oohs and ahs from people, I have made a terrible mistake. So I would encourage you, don't pray and don't engage in any other form of Christian service to gain the praise of men. And so as much as your flesh wants it, as much as you want people to know uh, how great you are and to attract attention to yourself, worldly praise is a fool's errand. And it never satisfies. And it cannot compare to the joy of God's approval. So hypocrites pray to impress people. And in contrast to that, verse 6 says that Christ's disciples pray to spend time with God. So verse 6 says, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, now to really understand what Jesus is saying in this verse, we have to understand uh, that, that in most, most ancient homes, uh, we're not set up like our homes, where we've got 10 rooms and sealed windows, all right? So, so that just wasn't the case. No, no, most homes in the ancient world consisted of one big room. So you cooked your food, you ate, you slept, you did everything together, in this one big room. And, and, and then, uh, as well, the windows weren't necessarily sealed up either. And, and, so, and, and so you did everything together. There, there wasn't a lot of privacy, inside or outside. Now, if you're a hypocrite, you don't want privacy because you want everyone to see you and hear you that's possible. You know, so, so if you're praying in your house, you've got the windows open so everyone can see you walking by, they can hear you in there uh, making a scene. 
And, um, and so, and so that's, that was their goal. But, but Jesus tells his disciples that when you pray, you're not supposed to make a scene. You're to go into your room and shut your door. Now, now, the room that Jesus has in mind here probably would have been some kind of small storeroom that would be in the center of the house. So, so it would be the place where you would keep your food or, or even keep animal food. It wasn't just you know, a pantry like ours would be. And, uh, and other supplies. And it would be the most sealed up, quiet, private place in the house. Now, this wasn't a glorious place. In fact, they didn't have modern stores like we do, so it might very well have smelled or uh, been very dirty in there, but it was private. And Jesus says that's exactly the kind of place that you should seek out to pray. So prayer is not about putting on a public show. It's about getting alone with God and spending time with Him. And I do want to clarify here then that Jesus is not saying that a prayer closet is the only place you can pray. So Jesus himself prayed publicly pretty often, right? And, and in fact, prayed in, in such a way to teach other people at times. John uh, chapter 11 gives us an example of that. And, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says, uh, Paul says, I desire that the men pray everywhere. And, and in the context there, he's talking about prayer in, in the worship of the church. So he says, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. So the New Testament teaches that that prayer is a vital aspect of our gathering as a church. So so we don't pray on Sunday uh, just to fill time. We don't pray on Sunday to just give us a convenient way to transition from one part of the service to the next. No, no, we gather in part to pray. It's it's an important part of our life as a a church, as an assembly. And, and, and as well, I'd add that, that there are a few more significant ways that you can minister to a brother in Christ than to pray together. Someone's discouraged. Someone's working through a trial. To stop and pray together, whether at church, at a restaurant, or wherever it might be, is, is a great thing to do. So, so Jesus is not saying you can only pray in a closet by yourself. No, no we have to understand that he is correcting an abuse here, right? So, so. The point is, is not so much where you pray, but but that when you pray, that that your goal is not to pray for attention, but to pray for God. So make make sure that you put yourself in the best position possible to get alone with God and to talk with Him, knowing that God sees. He sees you in secret, and He approves. Now, it's hard to overstate just how different that approach to prayer is than how most other religions, in fact, probably every other religion in the world, approaches prayer. So in most religions, and even, I mean, we all have this tendency, so we all fall into this right at times ourselves, but in most religions, prayer is about impressing the gods, showing the gods how spiritual you are, or showing God himself how spiritual you are. You know, it's about uh, earning favor with him. I I pray to to merit righteousness, or or people pray to escape judgment. Like I'm on my way to to God's judgment, so I'm praying to to buy off his favor. Or, uh, for others, prayer is just about getting what I want. 
You know, I, I really want this car, or I really want this job, or I really want this, this, this illness to go away. And so we pray to get something. So for a lot of people, God is just a big vending machine in the sky. And if I put in enough money and I punch the right buttons, boom, prayer will give me the thing that I want to have. But, but the gospel should revolutionize our perspective on prayer. So so I am already justified in Christ. I don't have to earn righteousness by my prayer. And I'm adopted into God's family. I know Him as my Father. And therefore, I don't pray to impress God. I don't pray to earn righteousness with God. And I don't pray to avoid His judgment. No, I come to Him securely. I come to my Father and I enjoy fellowship with the one who loves me. So so that is radically different. That is a radically different relationship to God. And and, and so we enjoy a radically different relationship to God, which calls for a radically different approach to prayer. I had a a teacher in college that would say that, that when you pray, you should keep your gaze on God and your glance on your request. And that's so good. You know, the, the, the best way to, 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 to avoid the hypocrisy that Jesus condemns is to not go to prayer just obsessed with the thing that you want God to give you, but to come to prayer obsessed with God, wanting to gaze at Him, behold His glory. I mean, prayer is about being with God more than it is about getting something from Him. So we come to gaze on His glory, to rejoice in the grace of Christ. And as you do that, you will learn to enjoy God in prayer. And He will overwhelm those selfish motives. You know, something else that is so encouraging about verse 6 is the closing promise that Jesus gives. He says, and, and, and the, your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, God sees the sincere heart even if no one else does. And that's a big deal, right? Because are you ever tempted to feel like private prayer is a waste of time? You're just sitting in your bedroom or sitting in your office or some other place and you've got stuff to do. And you're sitting there praying. And it's like, man, you know, I could be getting something done. But what's the benefit of private prayer? That's how we so often think. No one sees what I'm doing, and I'm not getting other stuff done. And Satan wants you to believe that you are wasting time praying to God in your closet, or wherever it is. But Jesus says that God sees you in the closet. He is there. He knows your heart, and he hears every request that comes from your mouth, or even every request that is not verbalized that is simply in your heart. He sees you in that secret place. James chapter 4, verse 8 promises that when you draw near to God with a sincere heart, broken before Him, that He will draw near to you. And that is a wonderful gift. It is a precious gift to draw near to God in prayer. And and by the way, you know, I just add with that, that, that your feelings don't define whether or not God is near to you. I mean, Jesus says 
that when you pray with a sincere heart, He sees and He is there. Even if it does not feel like He is there. So, so in sum, it is such a blessing that, that when we come to God in prayer, we don't have to worry about impressing God because we are already accepted in Christ. And therefore, I don't have to worry about impressing people either because God's approval matters far more. Now, I have the privilege of just getting alone with my God, worshiping Him, casting my cares on Him, and knowing that He is near with the love of of a father, not just a judge. It is a great gift. So, so I want to encourage you, take advantage. Devote yourself to private prayer. Now, Robert Murray McShane uh, once said this uh, famously, that, that what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. And that's so true. I mean, nothing, nothing defines you as a Christian more than what you are in your prayer closet. Now, now of course, obviously, underneath the gospel, and, and, and I guess there's some things you could add to that, but, 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 but at the core of, of what personal godliness is, it is summed up in how we relate to God in prayer. So, so take advantage. Now, I know we're, we're all busy, all right? We've all got stuff to do, and, and even if we don't have legitimate stuff to do, we can watch TV and waste all sorts of time. But, but none of us are too busy to pray. So find time to regularly get alone with Him and seek Him in prayer. So, so pray for God, not for people. And then the second major challenge in our text is trust God's wisdom and goodness. Trust God's wisdom and goodness. So, so again, in verses 7 and 8, uh, Jesus contrasts an ungodly approach to prayer with, with a godly one. And, and this time, though, his foil is not uh, the hypocrite uh, of verse 5, but instead the pagan religions of his day. So, so first of all, notice that he says in verse 7 that pagans pray to persuade the gods. Pagans pray to persuade the gods. So verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, now the background to this verse is that in ancient pagan religions, uh, prayer uh, typically was very different from ours. So, so they, when, when they prayed, uh, it was usually about going through some formulaic saying to get something from the gods. So, so you might say the god's name over and over and, and use different emphases as you say his name or kind of sing-songy, or, or you might just speak gibberish, you know, just speaking you know, random syllables that mean nothing at all, but, but you get yourself worked up and blah, 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 blah and, uh, and, and the gods see that and they appreciate that. Or, or, or you might repeat a certain phrase over and over and over and over and over again, and the more you say it, the more attention you get from the god. You know, it reminds me sort of of, of a fairy tale. Remember, you know, as a kid, a fairy tale about some witch, and this witch has a, a book of magic spells, and so... If she wants to grow wings and fly, there's a, there's a spell for that. And so you say these words, you put this stuff in the kettle, and boom, you grow wings and you can fly. You know, or, or you want to turn someone into a frog, there's another incantation. And so you say these you know, ten words, and you do this little you know, jig, and all of a sudden, this person turns into a frog. It's formulaic. It's very impersonal. 
And it's built on the assumption here that the gods are fickle and and really uncaring. We have a biblical example of this pagan sort of prayer when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So, you know, there was this challenge that, that who could bring down fire from God? And so, uh, 1 Kings 18 tells us that for hours, the prophets of Baal recited their incantations and their pleading with, with Baal to send fire down from the sky. And verses 27 and 28 say, And so it was at noon, after they had been doing this for quite some time, that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And so they did this. And so, yes, in part, Elijah is mocking them, but his mocking is only slightly different from what they actually believe. You know, they thought it was up to them to, to get Baal's attention somehow and, and to prove to them their devotion. And, and so, we need to understand that there's a lot of theology baked into how these prophets of Baal were trying to pray. The way they prayed said a lot about how they saw him. And, and so, they didn't see Baal as a personal, loving, or wise father. I mean, they saw him as fickle. They saw him as uninterested and uncaring. They saw him as someone that could be manipulated. And as a result, they were just trying to earn his attention and get him to give them the thing that they wanted. And sadly, a lot of people today approach prayer, and probably in every generation, the same way. So they don't come to God in humble submission to worship him and to bend their will to his. No, they come proudly to God, looking to get something from Him. And as a result, Jesus says in verse 7, they think that they will be heard for their many words. It's a very legalistic system, right? And the whole system is built on a wrong view of God. So so Jesus commands us, do not use vain repetitions. Now, now, I do want to make a couple clarifications. What, what does this mean by vain repetitions? Because I think sometimes we misunderstand this and misapply it. So first of all, Jesus is not saying that it is necessarily wrong to recite a written prayer or, or to say the same thing uh, you know, day after day. You know, for example, if you do it appropriately, praying the Lord's Prayer could be a great discipline because the Lord's Prayer is full of biblical language and and it communicates the types of values that we ought to be prioritizing in prayer. So, so Jesus is not saying uh, that, that you can never repeat a prayer, or, or even, you know, there are um, uh, books of prayers. So there's one valley of vision of, of old Puritan prayers that people have that, that you can pray through. And he's not saying those things are necessarily wrong. No, no the issue is my mind and my heart, Right? So if I am thoughtlessly reciting words, or like, you know, the the witch with her book of spells, just viewing these words as something that that automatically bring about this certain end, then I am thinking wrongly about prayer. I'm just going through a ritual. 
But if my heart is engaged, I would actually say that, that a pre-written prayer uh, could actually be a great way to stretch your mind. Because, you know, most of us, you know, whether you're, you're praying out of a book or something or not, we, we have certain things that we just say over and over and over, right? They may not be in a book, but we say them over and over and over again thoughtlessly because of habit. So, so the issue is, is that you need to engage your thoughts and go deep into fellowship with God. Another clarification I think is worth making is that Jesus is not saying that, that we never pray for the same thing. So, so Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, tells us that three times he prayed that the Lord would remove this cup from him. Luke 18 commends persistence in prayer. So, so the issue is, is letting prayer spiral into thoughtless ritual. Okay, That's the issue that Jesus is after. And he's also after that idea, that, again, that, that I become formulaic, that, that I equate getting what I want by doing this a whole bunch of times. Now, now I imagine that, that most of us don't want our prayer lives to be thoughtless, mindless ritual. And uh, we want fresh experiences of prayer, right? But we look at this verse and we think, man, I do that all the time. You know, I get 30 seconds into my prayer life, into my prayer time, and, and my mind is going five different directions, and, and I just end up repeating the same phrase, you know, over and over, or, or, or I'm just totally distracted, I'm not even praying at all. And, and, and when that happens, we get frustrated, we get discouraged, and then we probably just stop praying altogether. Because what's the point if I'm just going to be distracted and lost the whole time? Well, well, there's a lot of practical steps that you can take to help with that. You know, for, for some, now, now um, for me, walking or driving helps keep my mind engaged in prayer. Now, some of you, that might make it a whole lot worse. But I do really well uh, praying while I drive. For, for whatever reason, it helps me, and maybe that would help you. Um, you know, it might be uh, that, that you use prayer lists and prayer schedules, and so, you know, if, if you've got schedule, you, you pray for this on Monday, this on Tuesday, this on Wednesday, it's a way to vary your prayers and keep them from becoming monotonous. You know, a prayer list is also a good accountability tool because if you've been sitting there for five minutes and you've only gotten through one line of your prayer list, it's like, oh, I need to keep moving. And that's a good thing uh, to have in prayer. Uh, some of you know that in the last a year and a half or so, I have fallen in love with praying through Scripture. And so, uh, uh, April, March of, of last year, 2020, I started a, a discipline of praying through various psalms, and, and it has been a rich blessing to my soul to, to, to use the psalms as, a, as an outline, a guide for my prayer time. And, and there's all sorts of other just practical steps that you can take. If you want help growing your prayer life, I would love to sit down and talk with you about that. But, you know, but fundamentally, I, I would challenge you today and encourage you not to be content with a, prone, a, a puny prayer life that is sporadic, that is scattered, you know, that, that you lose interest after 30 seconds and then you're off to do something else. Because a healthy prayer life is a wonderful grace and it is vital to your spiritual health. So, so do not be content to pray like a pagan. So pagans pray to impress people. In contrast, or to impress the gods, excuse me. In contrast, verse 8 says that Christ's disciples pray 
with confidence in God's wisdom and goodness. So Christ's disciples pray with confidence in God's wisdom and goodness. So, so verse 8 says, Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. Now this is a short little verse that, that, that frankly, we, we could just skip over. Like, alright, let's get to the Lord's Prayer and, and miss this one. But, but this is a very profound verse. Especially when you contrast verse 8 with verse 7. So Jesus is saying here that that my view of God needs to radically reshape how I approach God in prayer. So again, pagan prayer is built on the idea that the gods are small. They're fickle. They don't really care about me all that much. And and on the idea, frankly, that, that my will is right. So so when a pagan prays, it's all about convincing the God to give me the thing that I know I should have. But Jesus reminds us that our God is very different from that. What's he saying? Your Father. And don't miss the significance of that word Father. We'll talk about that when we get in the Lord's Prayer. Your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. So first of all, that means... That God cares about your every need. He is not some disinterested, distracted deity who's up in heaven, you know, watching the football game and, and is not paying attention to your situation. No. You have his full attention. He knows you, he knows your situation perfectly, he is entirely engaged in your life. So you don't have to grab his attention with some impressive show when you pray. You just come to him as a loving father, like any good human father. And beyond that, it's not just that he knows your situation. He perfectly understands your need. And he also understands the best way to get you there. So I don't have to inform God of anything that he doesn't already know. And I certainly don't need to persuade him to think better. Like if God really understood my perspective, he would change his mind. And later in chapter 6, Jesus will add that his purposes for me are always good. Now we worry and we fret. And and Jesus is going to say, you know, I I care about you. Why are you worried? I I care for the, the grass. I care for the lilies. I care for the animals. I care about you. So so God doesn't take some sick pleasure in in your suffering. He wants to give you good things. So so therefore, his understanding of your need and his understanding of the solution to your need are good in every sense. Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that God's good and and the way to get there are necessarily lined up with what you think is good. You know, because we want life to be comfortable and easy and and pain-free, right? So what we think is good is my life is comfortable. But God knows that what is really good is that I be conformed to the image of Christ. That is the good in Romans 8.28 that we quote so often. 
is that I would be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and so God knows that oftentimes the only way to get us to the ultimate good, which is to be like Christ and to be near to Christ, is through the path of suffering and, su- and hardship. And, and that's important because, you know, I mean, why are we oftentimes anxious in prayer? Why is it, you know, or Philippians 4 says, you know, you know, don't be anxious, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. You ever wonder, like, why don't I have that peace? Well, usually it's because I know what I want. I want to be comfortable. And if God doesn't give me the comfortable thing I want, then I'm not going to be happy. So our anxiety is tied to the fact that we're holding out the hope that I know what's best, better than what God does. And God knows what is perfect. He knows the best way to get there. He knows and He cares. And therefore, when we pray, it's not our, we, we shouldn't be before the throne of grace anxiously trying to bend God's will to mine. Like, i got to convince God to give me this thing that I want. No, I should come with humility to cast my cares on Him, knowing that He cares for me. I come fundamentally to bend my will to His, never to bend His will to mine. Now, now that doesn't mean that the only thing you ever pray is, your will be done, your will be done, your will be done. Now, in in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, uh, Jesus is going to encourage us to ask boldly for the things that we believe are right. And you can look throughout the Psalms and other places and see uh, that many times the, the writers of Scripture would, would ask God hard questions in their prayer, and, and they would plead with Him based on His character and promises to do something. You know, so an Israelite might pray, Lord, I, we are suffering at the hands of our enemies. You said that you would be faithful to your people. So act on your character and promises. And we need to understand that those kinds of prayers are, are not um, irreverent or, or disrespectful of God. No, instead, they're really expressions of faith. So they're saying, I can give my burdens to the Lord, and I trust Him to act based on His character and promises. So plead with God and talk honestly with God, but never forget who He is and who you are. God has a perfect plan, a perfect purpose, and we can rest in that. So ask for great things and rest in His perfect will. You know, in in conclusion, this passage makes me so thankful for the gospel and for the privilege of knowing God as my Father. You know, I'm so thankful that, that when I go to God in prayer, I don't have to buy His favor. I don't have to convince him to be good and kind. Through Christ, I am secure in his love, and I can talk to him as my father. Now, now I do want to emphasize that that security, that, that, that comfort in prayer, only belongs to those who are in Christ, right? So, so the Bible is clear that that, that that relationship that I have with God as my heavenly father does not belong to every person on the planet, that that God is distant from the wicked because of their sin, and He does not listen to their prayers. 
The Bible's also clear that there's nothing I can do to make God my Father and earn the right to enter into the throne room of grace. Now, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So this is a wonderful thing, but it does not belong to every single individual. So so if you want to to have that relationship to God as your Father, the first thing you need to do is pray and and ask that He would forgive you of your sin. Pray that, 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 or or, or confess your your trust in what Jesus did on the cross and and ask Him to be your Savior. And, And when you do that, the Bible promises that He will forgive you of all your sin that you will be justified in Christ, you will be adopted into the Father's family, and then, after you are adopted, you can enjoy the wonderful life of prayer that Jesus describes. So if you've never received Christ as your Savior, the first thing you need to do is pray and ask Him to do that. And then for all of us, let's all just just pray with the perspective of this text and take advantage of the wonderful gift that we have in prayer. We all need to learn to spend time in His presence, worship our Father, anchor our mind in His truth, and we need to learn to give every burden to Him. So pray for God, not for man, and pray with confidence in the goodness and wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much that we can come to You as our Father, and it is a wonderful, precious gift. And so, Lord, we pray that that you would help us to keep a clear vision of your character that is anchored in the promises of the gospel. And may we enjoy sweet, deep communion with you. Lord, protect us from living as hypocrites. Protect us from trying to assert our will on you. Teach us to rest in you and trust in you. In Christ's name, amen.